So in this episode, I speak with Dave Bidler. He's the founder of Physiology First. It's a nonprofit that focuses on uh, youth anxiety and, and mental health challenges. Um, we discuss and focus on a number of the tools that he and his organization are equipping families and schools to address this ever-growing issue with mental health challenges and anxiety in youth. So um, the timing of this release happens to coincide with the month of May. We're releasing in May of 2020, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. So the timing is appropriate. It wasn't necessarily intentional, but certainly fortuitous. So uh, take a listen. Uh, there's a lot of great information that Dave provides on the tools and tips to address this and how to respond to this growing challenge. Welcome to another episode of the Rest and Recovery Podcast. Today, my guest is David from Physiology First, and uh, welcome, David, to the podcast. Scott, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to chat. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, you know, we'll get into Physiology First and the mission around mental wellness, uh, which has been a topic over the last couple of years that's gotten more headlines. Uh, but really move into the mission of Physiology First and around youth. But before we get there, I'd like to just get a little bit of a background on you, uh, your personal career path, and how you've evolved to launch Physiology First. Sure, Scott. So, you know, looking back on the really circuitous set of events that led to having, you know, a nonprofit focused around stress and anxiety um, education for youth, I look back to being a young kid myself and dealing with a ton of, um, of social anxiety, dealing with episodes of depression, and, and looking for a better and clearer conversation around mental health. You know, as a young person, I didn't have any, you know, any, any knowledge or any skill set around physiology or the brain or the body. I knew nothing about it, but I knew that the quality of the questions that were being asked to young people who were dealing with what are termed mental health issues or mental health conditions could have been of a, of a higher quality analytically. We could have asked better questions and better questions could have been asked. So, so some of the questions I didn't hear in the conversation, you know, in, in my own life and in the lives of other young people who were dealing with anxiety and depression growing up were, you know, so how are you sleeping? What is your nutrition like? What is, how often are you exercising? What do we understand to be a physiological requisite? You know what I mean? A, a requisite foundation that has to be uh, in place before anybody can be expected to feel, to not feel anxious, to not run into episodes that feel like depressive episodes. What do we need? What do our brains and bodies need? Um, at that time in the 80s, now in 2020, where that shifted a lot due to modern technology, what is the yeah. requisite physiological foundation before you can even have a psychological assessment of any level of clarity take place? So I began to ask these questions, at, you know, just in, in, in a vague way growing up in an abstract way. But as I, as I looked at paths to reclaim my own health, because by the time that I was 18, I was, I was very much out of shape. I was feeling pretty down in general. And a friend of mine, um, and I thank him for this forever, he dragged me into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu training studio. <laughs> and I made every single excuse not to do this. <laughs> I was always too busy, right? I said, oh, right. I can't do it Tuesday. I can't do it this Thursday. And, and my, my friend Dan, 
kept pestering me about it. And he finally dragged me to the studio. And I'll never forget it because at the time I was, I was chain smoking cigarettes. I, was lit. I felt exhausted. I felt depleted in so many ways. And I didn't even have a, um, you know, a mirror because I'd never felt truly awesome, truly strong, truly fit, truly you know, energetic. Being around these men and women in this jiu-jitsu studio and seeing this complete counterculture to how I was living, how I carried myself, and just how, um, how honest they were about their pursuit of, of increasing health and fitness and how hard they worked together was such a, a new frame for me to look at. I began to train with these men and women, and I got my butt kicked, man. I, mean, I got my butt kicked to the point that I would, it's probably, people probably still talk about it because I would tap out but I wasn't in any hold or submission. I just couldn't breathe. <laughs> I imagine yeah. being a chain smoker in a jujitsu uh, grappling center, you know? And I left that first night and I said, man, I want to, I like that culture. That's something I hadn't seen. And I liked the feeling that I got physiologically when I left. And it carried over into the next day. And I started to learn that as I went back, even though I still smoked, even though my lifestyle was still far from uh, healthy or fit in any way, I started to feel better mentally and physically as I got into a physical movement practice. And as I learned from these men and women, other tools that they were putting in their toolbox around sleep, nutrition, breathing, I felt like a whole new world was being opened up to me. And, and I made a commitment to myself at that time to say, wait, there's a bridge, there's a gap in knowledge, there's a gap in onboarding for people who may feel anxious, depressed, and really bad to understanding that this counterculture exists around building a skill set in a community to feel really good. And that if we could build communicative bridges, people can see that they can cross that bridge and actually feel pretty amazing. It just yeah. takes a little bit of work and understanding what we have yeah. available to them. It's amazing to see um, the awareness factor is a great one and understanding the influencers that both positively and negatively affect your cognitive ability or uh, I'll call it the filters that you put on to understand the external world around you, what's happening, understanding intent versus uh, action. Cause sometimes we have good intentions misapplied. And then, you know, especially when it comes to youth, you don't have the personal skills yet to really understand and how to interpret. I, I mean, many adults challenge with that, right? Let alone youth who have a million different things happening all at once to try and understand what's happening to them and just understanding some foundational principles like what you eat, what you do, and, and the impact to that. A absolutely. And how much of that gets up being models? You know, like I remember to go back to the jujitsu example, I saw it in the teacher immediately. I saw qualities and characteristics just being modeled because he put certain practices in place. So there was so much teaching that went unsaid because it was evident in the way that someone carried themselves. And I thought, well, that person obviously has a set of skills that has gotten them into a position of, of being able to be a quality teacher and leader. What are the skills? And when you realize, when I realized that they were not incredibly inaccessible, we're talking about patterns of breathing, we're talking about small life lifestyle changes that add up to big impact, I began to ask questions about how we can make the, the skill set more available. Um, I ended up uh, from, from the jujitsu world, I ended up getting an injury at some point and in, in, in taking up running to stay in shape. I came across a, um, at, his, at my teacher's recommendation, a book called Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Karnazes. And it's about, 
an ultramarathon runner who is pursuing 50 mile distances and 100 mile distances. And it just blew the top off of anything that I thought possible in, in my life and in, in, in physical capacity in general. And it led me on sort of a journey into endurance sports and ultra distance running, um, which eventually led me to a journey to wanting to share what I learned through it. So I began coaching, opened up a gym in 2015 called The Distance Project in Freeport, Maine. And it was through that athletic portal that we first started to really look into breathing, breath, state management, and the relationship between something like breathing and anxiety and lifestyle and anxiety. Yeah. So that's an interesting evolution on, you know, how one small step towards wellness, even in any state, you take that one step forward, it's still progress, right? One is greater than zero every time. Um, and how it's evolved down to this path for you. So it's such an amazing thing, right? Yeah. So what was the jump or what was the connection point as you were doing the physical coaching and encouragement? Did you see the link between that and, you know, the underlying anxiety when you dealt with youth? Were you coaching youth and seeing some correlation there? Yeah, we, we were, you know, the, the, Working with endurance athletes pursuing ultra distance events, because that's kind of what the distance project began as. And then and it morphed and it evolved into something where we started meeting people who were, it wasn't just about ultra distance events. We have amazing athletes in their 80s who were kind of pursuing, like, they were pursuing growth through the medium of training. It was so much more for all of us than about, you know, trying to get a 100 mile belt bottle. Because these journeys these, in this endurance uh, uh, training world, you have so much time to think and reflect and you end up kind of grouping with reflective people and asking good questions. So I think we started to build those correlatives between sport and life really early. So it wasn't um, a far jump at all to begin to talk about things like our early anxiety levels, relationships, sleep, all these things that, you know, make you sort of prepare to be an athlete in the sport of life, not just in the sport of ultra running or ultra cycling. So the conversations around state management were already happening in the gym. And we ended up getting introduced. This was a really, um, really fortunate meeting. I'd always been so inspired by the work of Dr. Kelly Starrett. He's doing phenomenal work out of um, CrossFit San Francisco and his company, The Ready State. And I'd, I'd always, I'd, I'd read his books and he really helped shape our initial model. And I got a chance to go work with him in 2016, I believe, uh, 2016. And he's the first person to really introduce me to the, the role of breathing both in, in physical training and for state management. And I, I can't tell you how blown away I was. It's, it's like you said, a small dose of feeling something leads you, if you're curious, to want to know more about it and go deeper into it. And it took us down a multi-year rabbit hole of trying to meet with breath experts and breath specialists to better understand the relationship between breathing in our bodies and our brains. Yeah, and it's, it's a great point because... Uh, breath, it's not something you think about, right? It's something your body does automatically. Yes, you can control it as well, but you don't think about it generally uh, that it can affect your state or that you're in control of affecting your state, that if something were to bubble up, you can kind of push that aside through breath work and the mental strength. It's amazing, you know, and, and I think if we stay... 
present to that beginner's mind. Like at the time that Kelly had introduced me to some basic breath work, I had already been running a gym. I'd already been running ultra marathons. I was coaching athletes and it hadn't even come across my lens, you know? So, so to remember that for when we, when we experience how powerful breath control, breath awareness, breath training, breath practice are, and then try to communicate that back to someone like an anxious high schooler or an athlete who hasn't been exposed to it yet to understand that that barrier is up to us to break with better stories of experience because it's not obvious to any of us that breath plays, or it wasn't obvious to me, I know, that breath played such a critical role in mental health, physical health, and, and obviously in athletic performance. So we've touched on kind of two tenets, the physical fitness and then breath work and on the mission of Physiology First. Well, you know, the, the Physiology First is a nonprofit organization that we started in last April. So we're just about a year into it right now. And our mission is to share the science of stress and anxiety management with students so that they can absolutely rock the world. And when, as we began to learn more about breathing and um, state control, we started to, and we're working at this time with a lot of young athletes in high school and in college who are at our training center. And we saw how much they were responding to the breath work that we would do pre-workout or post-workout and how, and, and the quality of their questions about breathing because they felt something change. They felt their bodies relax in a way that they had initiated. And that was simple, accessible, and very, very short. So if you get someone who's, you know, 15, 16, they're dealing with anxiety issues, and you just show them you know, in, a, in a formal setting, you know, a gym setting, that in two minutes they can drastically shift how they feel. They remember that physical lesson, so they became really curious about it. We started to get bigger groups together, and we started to invite high school students to the gym for breathing presentations. And eventually we started going out into the community and doing breathing presentations for anxiety management. And the response was phenomenal. And we thought, you know, this... If we can build an organization that can scale this into curriculum in public schools across the country and beyond, it, it, would, it would be such a powerful tool to share at such a critical time when anxiety rates are skyrocketing and we're still trying to figure out how we talk to young people about their bodies and their brains in a way that's most engaging and shows them that anxiety means something, stress means something. These aren't just nebulous terms that end up meaning everything at once, they're actionable or they're physiological states that we actually have agency over. If we can do that, we can, we can tie it into the goals that the young people we're working with and have them see why it would be advantageous to have the skill set. You, you can get young people really engaged really early in something as complex as state management and physiological state control. Yeah, it's, it's helping, that, helping youth and, and anyone probably to understand <clears throat> That if your body's responding in a certain way, simply acknowledge it and equip them with the tools to be able to manage it. That's what it sounds like. Is that a fair assessment? What, a, very, a very fair assessment and really well put. You know, as you pointed out, the body responds and the body responds first. And I, don't, I know from the young people that we're working with that that's not um, – I think that we – are still in a stage of understanding our minds and bodies, which is built around pre-neurobiological assessment processes. Right? We have psychology pre-neurobiology. So we're, we're working to understand what's happening 
you know, underneath the hood, but we hadn't really looked underneath the hood. Right. right. So I, right. I, we meet a lot of young people who don't understand that the body responds first before you're present to the fact that you're feeling a little bit stressed, a little bit anxious. You, a physiological cascade has begun. Subcortical processes, underneath the hood processes have begun. And if you can recognize it, get ahead of it, and then actually have the skill to change your state, it's, it's this powerful 21st century skill. But they have to understand where the origin of sensation, emotion, perception, where, where these originate. And that by the time that you realize, man, I feel very anxious, you're several stages into a complex process. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. So when it comes to equipping the students, it, it sounds like breath work is the primary tool. Are there other tools or, or steps and processes in which you and maybe some healthcare partners uh, walk through scenarios with students uh, and or parents to help them even recognize, hey, my child might be going through X? Yeah, so great question. And one of the things we're working on right now is, and, and, and with the COVID-19 crisis, everything shifted to online learning. So initially, we have to ask ourselves, what can we do in a seminar? What can we do in a seminar that's maybe half an hour to 45 minutes? Because the biggest challenge for a lot of the schools that we're partnering with is time. You know, they are, they are booked from the moment that they come in to the moment that the students leave, and then the students are booked into sport. So often we're dealing with very short time windows to try to share a few critical principles. So one reason that we focus on breath is, A, it's immediate. The effect of doing the simple breathing exercise is immediate. They can take it home immediately. It doesn't cost any money. There's no barrier. We've even had the opportunity to work with to work in settings where it was able to help us cross language barriers. So breath is such an accessible power tool. And if we can try to make one point in a half hour seminar or 45 minute presentation with students, it would be that if you control your breath, you have greater control over so many facets of your physiology, your mental health, your physical health in your life. And so we, and, and the, the idea or our hope is that that can open up a door of dialogue and conversation to some of the other mediums like, physical health, training, sleep, all of the other things that make us a, a you know, healthy, thriving organism. But right. in the seminars, we really try to tie it into breath because they can leave with that one sound understanding, one or two simple exercises, and then they can practice and practice and develop a skill set around breathing. Great. And so is an element too is, hey, the practical example of how you might feel. Like if you start feeling this way or, you know, chest is tightening up or confusion or what, like do you address kind of the emotional so they can kind of affirm or validate how they're mm-hmm. feeling and then be able to respond to that. Absolutely. That a big goal is building, building the language, um, creating universal language that transcends that goes and gets out of the, the science world and it just hits people wherever they are in terms of the relationship to them, their goals, the way that they feel and the way that they want to feel. So one thing we learned early in seminars was the importance of setting up a structure where at the, it, no matter how short the seminar, where we're having young people visualize the version of their life that makes them feel the most fulfilled, awesome, happy, contributive. And we have them, we ask them, just lay down for a sec, you know, just visualize it, create a mental picture of you living a life that makes you feel amazing and you're doing good things in the world and you feel awesome. 
and then have them sit up and let them know that they don't need to report back the, the answer to us. It's not a test. It's just a chance to get an idea of where we might want to go. And then to remind them that all these, all this talk about breathing and stress and anxiety management is just to give them a toolkit to help them get there. So where do you want to go? You know, and this is a skill set when you run into the barriers, the roadblocks, the barricades, the unexpected. You can use it to meet your goal because not everyone does. And we're very honest with students about, you know, what it takes to bring dreams to life, to bring ambitions to life, to get where you want to go in the 21st century. Um, and once they recognize that it's about them, that changes the narrative completely. So help them create their own personal vision of who they mm -hmm. want to be and where they want to go. A absolutely. And we talk a lot about the, we talk a lot about these skill sets of, of stress management and the skill set of clarity and the skill of attention. And we, we put that, that, those three things up on a list. And we ask them, what do you think the, the number one skills are that you would need to meet your goals and to live the life that you want to live? And we ask them, we get great answers, great you know, insights. But we'll usually focus on those three. I have to have clarity. I have to know where I want to go. And, and that can change a million times. A lot of these kids are 15, 16, but to have some initial vision of I'm, I'm going west, <laughs> you know, is, is a direction. It's somewhere that you can point energy towards. It's something that you, you've created in your mind that you'd like to bring to life. To understand stress management as a skill, not a vague psychological concept, that we're going to leave them with a skill that can help them change how their body, the state of their body, their heart rate, their pupils, their skin temperature, their physiological stress response, they can take control of that. And then to have the larger conversation around what it takes to be able to pay attention in a world so crowded with information so that you can actually navigate the path to your goals. So while a lot of the presentation is about breathing, we want to be so sure that it's connected to life because no one inherently at 16 is that interested in lung function, um, <laughs> nose hair, right? But you can get right. down the rabbit hole of this stuff and realize that you have a group of glazed over students who are like, wow. So that's how hemoglobin, like, you got to be really careful to say, listen, this is, these are simple power tools that are about you reaching your goal. Let's, let's, um, let's look at some of the biggest barriers to reaching goals. And we, we, we put up some statistics on mental health, anxiety rates. And we ask, at almost every seminar, we ask the students, like, who here thinks that anxiety and stress are big problems, societally and globally, in every room we've ever been in? Students are like, I do. And then we'll ask, you know, who here in the room can define stress or anxiety? And the room always kind of falls quiet because they're, we're talking about this nebulous concept that means anything and everything. And if we want to build an actual skill set around overcoming stress and anxiety, we have to begin to at least use language that we can build a conversation around. Words have to mean things. We have to understand the actual response in the body. So we, we take them through um, a great video from Stanford Medicine, phenomenal, by our friend Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's running the ER lab at Stanford, which is incredible. And um, uh, my business partner and I got to go out there a few years ago. And in the VR lab, they take you through these different fear scenarios, and they can measure the physiological response when you put somebody under low levels or increasingly high levels of stress or anxiety. And then we can look, and as they do in the, in the experiment, we can look at what actions, mechanical actions, like breathing and changing patterns of vision, have the most impact on those states of stress and anxiety. And then correlate it with things like cognitive function, accuracy, the things you would need to succeed in school, work, 
uh, an interview, job interview, business life, and say, okay, if we can begin to understand, if we can look at a spectrum of physiological states, and we can take the words out of the weeds, and we can put on one side panic, and ask all the students, do you, do you, do you, can we relate to that word? And everybody raises their hand. And then we have, you know, awake, but I'm focused. Awake, but I'm calm. Sleepy, asleep, and dead. You kind of lay out a really broad physiological spectrum. Then we can ask the students, like, so if you're feeling awake and focused and ready to rock and ready to go, but it's 2.15 in the morning, what do you do to get to sleep? How do you travel that line of state? What are tools that you use? And we ask them. We get great answers. And kids are doing, you know, these kids want to feel awesome. They have a lot of skills in the toolbox. And in certain situations, more prevalent than ever, we're going to get a lot of students who say, I take my pills. And we validate that 100%. Well, you have a skill then. You have, you, have, you have a tool then. What are the most accessible tools with the least downside? Right? Always accessible, most upside. We can take a pill to change state. We can drink coffee to change state. I can do yoga. I can do all these different things. What's the most accessible when you feel anxiety rising in an elevator before you're about to go on stage at the high school play? You're going up to the stage, and you're going on three minutes. And you feel like you can't breathe and your body gets tight, your muscles tense, and you don't know how you're going to navigate the presentation or the, you know, the, the play itself. What can you do on the spot to get from I feel anxious to I feel focused, energetic, and, and, and ready to rock? And when they start to see that line, they can start to visualize like having a state that they're in and a state that they want to get to. Now they have a journey. Now they have a skill versus a set of abstract words and, 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 and concepts. Yeah. Yeah, it just um, kind of what I heard was acknowledge the feeling, mm-hmm. put that feeling into words, and then what you're doing is just helping them understand this is the underlying science to what's happening to you, and here's a tool to maybe push up against that, shut it down, or manage through it. it well said. That that really is it because, you, you know, we have – all probably heard the advice to listen to our emotions, respect our emotions, make sure that we're, we're feeling our feelings. And I think we need to be more nuanced and deliberate about how we're delivering that information. So in a way that we talk to, to students at our presentation is I'll tell them, look, you know, if I, were to, if I had a cup of coffee in my hand and I drank a cup of coffee while I was giving this presentation, and then I filled it up and drank another, and I filled it up and drank another, at some point in the game, you're going to see a difference in me and my physiological state. I've now drank seven cups of coffee, right? Yep, yep. And, and that's not a change in my psychological profile. It's not. If I feel jittery, anxious, and nervous, before I begin to invest in looking at that feeling as an authentic representation of how I should feel in this moment because it's happening, I probably need to have the skill of being able to rewind and look at the actions that took place right before it. Because if I can trace it back to the seven cups of coffee I just drank, I can understand that it's not a representation of how things are, it's the result of an action. But if nothing had changed and I suddenly started to feel anxious, I'd have to ask a different question. So when we can get young people looking at lifestyle and understanding that this action plus this behavior plus this exposure to a screen for two hours leads to this state, but if they find themselves in that state, they can rewind and take a check and kind of make a checklist of behaviors that may have led to it. And then they have power 
to actually recognize why they're in a specific state and to make lifestyle changes as opposed to feeling an emotion overwhelm them and say, well, I have to listen to this and respect it because it must be indicative of truth. Yeah, absolutely. So for physiology first, what, um, what are some tools that you recommend for parents for acknowledging or kind of assessing their child to see if there may be some anxiety challenges there? You know, I, I can't, um, I can't express how, how a simple breathing assessment and simple breath assessments are some of the lowest hanging fruit here where we can say if someone, if we have a young person who's dealing with all the complexities of modern life, right? They're dealing with all of the real stresses and challenges that today presents us and they're hyperventilating and they, they're not breathing well and that's driving up heart rate and that's driving up the anxiety at a purely mechanical level. Their foundational starting point from dealing with all those real challenges is compromised. They're, they're looking at real challenges in life from a compromised physiological state. So taking the time to do something like a CO2 tolerance test, um, taking the time to maybe just lay down and do some basic breath work and understand that so much of us breathe at an incredibly reduced capacity, both mechanically and physiologically. Then we can say, wait a minute, this uh, child went from taking 30 breaths a minute, 30 shallow breaths a minute, to taking 10 breaths a minute and utilizing their diaphragm and recruiting their parasympathetic nervous system, you're going to find that those shifts in that child are profound because their starting point wasn't on the verge of anxiety and then something happened. The starting point was, okay, I was calm, focused, and then something happened. So we're really just trying to move the baseline and simple breath awareness, breathing exercises, and breath assessments can play such a big role. It's hard to change an entire lifestyle in a week. That's why starting with breath becomes a really accessible start, uh, foundational starting point. Okay, great, great. So before we close out, I have a few questions yeah. for you personally. Um, what are you reading right now? Oh, wow. Uh, right now, like it, it, I just came back from a run. Right now, I'm rereading The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Josh is one of my favorite thinkers in the world. and it goes, um, he's, he is the child who the movie Searching for Bobby Fisher was based off of. Okay. So, yeah, so, yeah phenomenal, phenomenal uh, story. And he, he talks about the pressures and the reality of being a childhood chess prodigy and then taking a moment to realize that it wasn't just chess that he loved. It was the art of learning skill and the art of building practices that led to excellence in a particular domain. So it follows him from chess to Tai Chi push hands to ju uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. To, I believe now he's doing foiling uh, and, and playing a lot in the, in the water sport world. Phenomenal insights in how to look at everything as a learning opportunity and to, add, and to look at our own mental models with a little more clarity. Uh, so that, that's awesome. Awesome. Great. So what are you listening to right now, whether it's music or podcast? Music or podcast right now, listening to, let's see. It's a really good question because audiobooks have taken up so much of my, my bandwidth recently. I just got through a lot of Yuval Noah Harari stuff, um, Sapiens and 21st, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. So I've really been on, been on an audio, audio book cable lately. Yeah, I live, I live on Audible. 
um, and uh, podcasts for sure. So we talked around some tools for what we call within the rest and recovery perspective. And here we're talking about mental recovery for you personally, what is a go-to rest and recovery method, whether it's physical, mental, what have you? I, you know, I, I'm still transitioning from having been in a training, um, uh, mode for a hundred mile race in May to not training for a hundred mile race in May because again, everything is shut down currently due to COVID-19. So understanding my own physiology in that state of working to adapt to a certain type of specificity and a certain physical workload that I've had to dramatically shift and rethink. I've opened up the doors to so many practices I hadn't explored in a long time. So I have a daily breathing practice, which I rely on. I love, I look forward to, um, which has become multidimensional. I've added more dimensions to my own breathing practice than ever. Running is a place where I'm looking, I could say that I'm looking to find flow, but that I find flow in running. Uh, longer walks and strategy sessions around, you know, everything we're working to do to develop the nonprofit in this state of you know, educational transition with people online. So walks and breathing practice and running have been my go-tos. Great. Yeah, and no, I can more, totally more in the process. Yeah, I can relate to that. I was I had a uh, late April marathon I was training for. Okay, yeah. So then it's like, okay, I was, you know, in the peak of training for it. Now it's it's gone on pause for now, but or delayed. But, you know, look at an opportunity to continue to grow and like you said adapt and adjust other things that maybe you haven't uh had top of mind for yourself well, or, or or what have you. So you know, so um so honest about our own motivations, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. you know, it, one, one of the things that Josh Waitzkin says in a, in a phenomenal podcast on the Tim Ferriss show, he was just on Tim's show, phenomenal uh, conversation, so good, I recommend it to everyone, Josh Waitzkin on the Tim Ferriss show, but he was talking just about the construction of mental models, and us looking at life through a certain lens, I was like, but you can also learn to see the frame, and then we can start to ask questions around how we construct the frame that we're looking at life through, you know, so how, what, how do we get more honest about the construction of our own mental models? If I want to run hundred miles in the mountain, well, why, what thing was I looking for? Well, how else do I get that thing? Was it self-discovery? What was it? Uh, competitive ambition in that race? Like, why are we driven to do the things that we're doing? And I think that this moment in time has given us a chance to be so honest with ourselves and say, well, what is a compulsion? What is an obsession? What is a passion? What is a pursuit? And where can I apply? those things that I need in my life. And can I, can I be adaptable? Like you said, and turn them into a strength training practice in my living room or a shorter distance speed session or where else can I get what I wanted? If I can be clear about what it was. Yeah, no, that's great. So physiology first and some of the other organizations, how can people listening to this podcast find you, whether it's to learn or even interested in partnering with you to further advance the mission? Sure. Uh, we have three things going on. We're at the underscore distance underscore project where we work with endurance athletes. And I put up a lot of writing on our other platform about our other work at the distance project. So at the underscore distance underscore project, we talk a lot about training for life and some of the more um, widespread elements of, of, of where sport and life converge. Uh, physiology first at physiology first on Instagram where you can learn all about the nonprofit and how we're working to build curriculum, educational curriculum, 
around, like what would be a 21st century mental health education curriculum? What should every student know about their bodies and their brains in, 20, in 2020 and going forward? And we put a lot of content up there. Um, and we're ultimately working to build a lesson plan out that teachers and parents can share with students, a video lesson plan that they can start to incorporate into some of their at-home schooling right now. So you can definitely find us at those two places. Awesome. Well, David, I really appreciate your time. I am grateful for you starting up and the mission of Physiology First as a, as a person who, as a youth, had some anxiety challenges uh, as a father of three daughters, you know, being able to be equipped to at least acknowledge or simple tools to really help them through it is uh, is is a meaningful and helpful mission so grateful for you and your time and uh, best of luck to you well, i can't thank you enough scott for, for the conversation and the opportunity to share skills with each other so thank you so much for having me on great have a great day you too scott thank you thank you for listening to this episode lots of great practical tips covered here today And if you know someone who could get some value out of this episode, please share. Be super grateful. Uh, We're all about being well and improving our our life. And so if someone can get value out of this, please remember to uh, subscribe, review, and share. Again, grateful for you. Remember, be rested, be well.